This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined by Michael Beckley, an associate professor of political science at Tufts University, and Jean Kirkpatrick, a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you're a political scientist by training, and I wanted to get started with a little background first before we get into China and national security. I was wondering if you could tell me um, how you got into political science. Yeah, I think part of it is just um, from my family. So by I'm, I'm half Japanese, and the Japanese side of my family had um, an experience in World War II, both being my grandma was interned while her brothers were fighting for the U.S. military over in Europe, and um, a couple of them got shot, one of them got killed, and then her cousin was um, a conscientious objector to uh, the internment and ended up taking his case to the Supreme Court and losing. So I think just these, even though we, these aren't things we talked about, I think that just growing up, I had a sense of the importance of geopolitics on on just sort of people's everyday lives. And I, I think the other main influence is just as a child of the 1980s, I was surrounded by movies like Top Gun and Hunt for Red October that just gave me this interest and passion for international affairs. And so once I got into school, um, it's it's what I really have, have dedicated myself to ever since. And yeah, so we're, we're gonna be talking about your book, among other things, called Unrivaled. Why America will remain, will remain the world's sole superpower, and it's from Ox, um, excuse me, it's from Cornell University Press. So I wanted to start with so we're going to be talking about China national security, and I think there's this really common narrative um, in our culture, politics, that China is inevitably on the rise, and maybe perhaps we can slow it, but there's not much we can do to stop it. Um, I'm curious why why do people think that? How did that narrative get started? Um, could you speak to that? Yeah, I, I think one is just just sheer size. China is just, as the most populous country in the world, it tends to lead the world in so many different categories. And I think our minds just implicitly draw a link between size and, and power. So the fact that China, by some measures, already has the largest economy in the world is very impressive to people. The fact that China is the largest trader in the world in terms of goods, uh, the fact that China has the largest military in the world. I mean, just the just the sheer scale and size of China creates a very daunting competitor, I think, in the minds of many people, especially in the United States. And what I try to do in my research is show that, yes, China has all these impressive power assets, but because precisely because it's such a large country, it also has a ton of liabilities that actually suck away a lot of its deployable economic and diplomatic and military power. But I think, you know, a lot of people Obviously, they're busy with their days. They're just reading the newspaper. They're, you know, just hearing headlines about China. And it just makes it very easy to say, oh, you know, China just, you know, churned out as much steel as the United States and like six other countries did combined last year. China just laid down as much cement as the U.S. did in the entire 20th century. I mean, you can always find these eye-popping statistics just simply because China is such a large country. So I think that's, that's one of the major things that's driving it. The other is just simply that China is making moves. So it's using its power assets to really throw its weight around in a way we haven't seen from a great power, maybe other than Russia in the post-Cold War 
era. And so just because China is aggressively using its power also, um, you know, in, inflates the sense that China's on the rise, that's going to take over the world. The explanation, do you think, has to do with the fact that we're, you know, now in a post-Cold War era, um, the, Soviet, the Soviet Union's no more, Russia isn't the, isn't the enemy it used to be, and that perhaps political actors and coalitions need some sort of global international enemy? Is that a part of the story? Yeah, I think that's always that's always a part of it, because obviously, if you're in the Pentagon, it helps to have a big, scary adversary to justify large defense budgets. If you're a congressperson and there's been major job losses in your district, you know, it's very helpful to have a, a foreign adversary. That's the culprit of those job losses. If you're an author, frankly, you're going to sell a lot more books if you title it something like when China takes over the world, as opposed to, you know, when when things are pretty much the same as they are now, that's not going to sell a lot of books. So that's certainly a part of it. But, you know, th those of all those factors have always been there. I do think that there's some real substance behind the argument just in the last five or six years, simply because China really is going on a much more aggressive foot. I mean, it's just a fact that China is churning out warships faster than any country we've seen since World War II. It's a fact that China has loaded up more than 150 countries with a trillion dollars worth of debt. Um, it's a fact that China is pioneering and exporting these Orwellian tools of, of social control, you know, using digital technologies and surveillance cameras and these sort of smart city technologies to create really a, a totalitarian surveillance system. And now it's spreading that around the world. So, I mean, there's there's definitely a substance behind it, but there's always, of course, been political interests where, you know, a very scary foreign adversary is just, it's great for fundraising. You know, it's a great way, if you're a company, it's a great way to generate uh, R&D funding from the government or to get the government to train workers so that you don't have to train them yourselves, you know? So, I mean, there's, there's always gonna be that, but I also think there's some substance behind the argument too. I might look so scary from the outside, especially from, you know, the people who don't know much about the subject. Why didn't that dissuade you? Another way to put this to be, what got you involved in thinking about China um, and, and really looking sort of under the hood at the, the numbers? Yes, yeah, so I actually started out studying this um, in college and then in graduate school when I was working on my dissertation and this is in the you know mid 2000s and then you know china's economy is growing like gangbusters and i i really believed the the hype that china was going to be the dominant superpower in the world and so i thought you know the key geopolitical test for my generation is going to be how can the united states and china create a peaceful transfer of power essentially between you know from the united states to china and so i moved to china for a couple of years to really to really immerse myself in the language and the culture and, and understand this rising superpower but then ironically by living there i just became so much more aware of all the problems that china has the environmental problems the the population problems the um lack of of property rights uh, the corruption and the government even just think i mean so like for example i lived in this brand new apartment complex in beijing when i first moved there and it looked really nice and flashy, but over the course of the, the year that I initially spent there, there was just this giant crack opening up in the wall of my bedroom that just got bigger and bigger as I lived there. And so to me, that was almost like a metaphor for the broader things that I was seeing going on in the country where things that maybe look impressive from just a mobilizing resources standpoint 
once you look under the hood a little bit more, you realize either the human costs that had to go in to build them or the, the shoddy work um, or the liabilities that were racked up to, to create uh, those projects. So I think it was just really um, having my eyes open by spending time there and then turning to the data to really get the macro trends right. I'm wondering if you were at all scared or fearful of these uh, these numbers. We've been looking at them. I mean, I imagine if you have this view of China that's this rising inevitable power, you might not want to know, right? I mean, just being a Westerner, you might just want to be like, you know, I really don't. I don't want to look at the numbers. I don't want my worst fears confirmed. Not not really, because as a young, I, I think I was very lucky in the sense that, you know, I was coming into this as, as a nobody, you know, I was a young graduate student, I was looking for my first big project uh, to create a research agenda around. And so I was I was sort of a blank slate. And so when the facts weren't lining up with my initial assumptions, it was almost a good thing, because it gave me something new, a new thread that I could really dig into and maybe come up with some novel findings that other people hadn't publicized as much. So I, for me, I think I was in a very fortunate position, but I could understand why other folks who, you know, have their careers, their livelihoods invested in a certain narrative about China, that can be very difficult. I mean, it'd be the, it would be the flip side now for me where I've, I've written a book and a bunch of studies and, and articles that try to expose some of the weaknesses in China's rise. And so if if China suddenly powers through all of its problems and becomes a superpower, I'll probably have some major cognitive dissonance to work through. Um, I think that's just natural to human psychology. But I think because of the position I was in when I started studying this topic, I was very fortunate to be sort of a blank slate. Uh, unrivaled why America will remain the world's sole superpower. You make a distinction broadly between the growth in net, right? So we make this distinction with paychecks, right? When I get paid before taxation and after taxation. What distinction does that role play in thinking about numbers like steel produced or concrete laid, GDP, that sort of thing? Yeah, so it's it's kind of similar to with a company, you you can look at their gross profits or you can look at their net profits. And it's really important to look at the net profits because if a company is spending tons of money to produce its products, if it's generating a lot of waste that it has to clean up, if it's racking up a bunch of debt, that obviously is gonna cut into its bottom line. And it's the same thing for countries. So for example, I think the key indicator everyone uses to note China's rise is its huge gross domestic product, but that's just a measure of economic activity. It's essentially a measure of spending. You know, you just add up all the spending of governments and industries and um, people uh, in an economy and you get to this bottom line figure, but what it doesn't factor in are, are the costs, uh, things like debt, things like pollution that have to be cleaned up, uh, useless assets that even though they may have been priced in, aren't actually generating real economic value. Um, and so I just find when you do that, and there's been, you know, the World Bank, the United Nations, they, they also realize this problem that most of our measures are gross measures, they don't deduct costs. And so they systematically overestimate the wealth and power of countries with big populations like China and India. And so they're trying to come up with new net measures where you essentially, like an accountant, you create a balance sheet, you know, you put assets on one side of the ledger, liabilities on the other, and you subtract the latter from the former to try to come to some bottom line estimates. And when you do that for a country like China, it has a lot less wealth. It may have the largest economy in the world, but it has three to four times less wealth than the United States. Uh, and the same thing is true for the military. When you 
factor out all of the troops that China has to deploy just to defend its own borders and maintain internal security, a lot of China's military power and its military budget is really sucked up on homeland security issues. So it can't deploy those military assets abroad. And so it has a lot less to push abroad than it otherwise may look like on paper if you just look at the sheer numbers of troops or, or weapons platforms. Um, and the same thing in, in trade. You know, China's the largest trader uh, in the world, but that's sort of a by dint of statistics where China, because it's the so-called workshop of the world, you know, a lot of multinational companies do sort of final assembly and basic manufacturing in China. A lot of things like an iPhone or like this computer I'm talking to you on right now, those were technically a Chinese export, but the real value in the products was added in other countries, you know, like Apple in, in California. Um, and so when you subtract out all of those all of those um, extra value added from foreign countries, China's trade volumes aren't nearly as large. So you can do this across the board um, and, and it really alters our view of China's rise. I'm wondering to what degree inflating your gross domestic product, if you're China, is strategic. So I, I don't, the, the, the question isn't whether or not it's all strategic, but whether or not you might wanna make it look to the West as if you were stronger than you are by inflating your GDP. It makes sense logically, and I'm sure there are, are strategists within China that encourage that thinking. As you mentioned, there's other reasons why China inflates its GDP numbers, which I'll talk about in a second. But certainly, I think the logic you just spelled out is correct, because if people think you're powerful, then in some sense, you are powerful. You know, if people think that they're inevitably going to be horribly dependent on your economy and you're, and you're the rising superpower, they're going to be more likely to kowtow to your wishes. And so this is one of the reasons I think that China's GDP statistics, according to a recent study by the Brookings Institution, where they got all these economists from both Western countries and China, and China together, and they found that at least since 2008, China's been overstating its GDP growth rate. It's, it's almost double. Uh, you know, the, the listed rate is almost double what the actual rate has been. And so China's economy, they estimate, is probably about 20 to 25 percent smaller overall right now than what is currently being reported um, to international organizations. So there's certainly a strategic rationale. I actually think the more important driver, though, of China's uh, inflated economic statistics is more domestic politics. So the way you rise up the ranks in the Chinese Communist Party, if you're like a local leader, you know, or you're the boss of a state-owned enterprise, is just by maximizing growth in your province or in your, in your company. And that creates a very short time frame. You know, you just want to max out in, in the few years that you're at the helm, and then hopefully you can use that, that, uh, those successes to then rise up the ranks. And so it just creates these perverse incentives for, uh, for local leaders to, to exaggerate their statistics. Um, and then this, and, and, you know, the State Statistics Bureau knows this, and they've even admitted it. Um, those articles have since been censored, but even the head of the or the National Bureau of Statistics in China admitted that this is a problem, that you have these local leaders just over-reporting it. And, and there's plenty of precedent for this. I mean, we saw this you know, during the Great Leap Forward in China in the late 1950s, early 1960s, where again, the state was saying, we got to march up, you know, we got to rise up. And if you're a local leader, you can rise up the ranks. If you have good performance, well, you know, that's going to create these perverse incentives for them to exaggerate that. Do you think the um, Chinese Communist Party is worried about the end result of these perverse incentives? Yeah, can can kicking, I think, is a universal 
human attribute. The problem is in an authoritarian system, there aren't sort of, there's not like an opposition party to air the other side's dirty laundry and make a big uh, political mess out of it and, uh, you know, cause a transition in power. When you have a dictator like Xi Jinping, um, you know, it, it means that really your only option is to kick the can down the road. You don't want to stick your neck out if you're a local official, especially with Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, where he's essentially purged more than a million senior CCP officials. Uh, you don't want to be ruffling any feathers. You don't want to be disrupting any patronage networks by, you know, uh, airing all the dirty laundry of the of the regime. And so it just it really reinforces that natural human tendency to, of course, re you know, report statistics in in the light that makes you look um, that makes you look the best. So you explain this picture between growth and net in a lot of ways, like GDP, for example, or the number of troops used for like Homeland Security versus ones that they could be that could be projected on the international stage. That seems like one pillar of uh, arguments to think that China isn't nearly as powerful as the United States. But why think the United States will remain powerful? So there's two sides of that coin, right? One is that China's not going to overtake us. And the other one is that we're gonna roughly stay where we are. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think there's plenty of reasons to be worried about the United States. And I, I'm of sort of two views. On the one hand, if the United States were to get its house in order, no, no other country could come close because just the sheer amount of wealth and military power the United States has already built up creates this massive lead over other countries. And then, as I, as I write about in, in the book, uh, you know, the United States just has better long-term growth prospects than the other major powers. Because for one thing, the U.S. is the only major power that's going to have a growing population over the course of this century, um, whereas all the other major powers at some point, even India, which right now has rapid population growth, is eventually its population is going to start to shrink and age. So the United States has this demographic advantage. It also has a huge geographic advantage. I mean, the, the where the United States is located, it's packed with resources, lots of natural infrastructure, like all these rivers connected to deep water ports, you know, it just makes it very efficient to move goods around as well as the fact it's just a safe location. I mean, you have Canada, Mexico, and two huge oceans. China has dozens of countries around it. Many of them are hostile and unstable. It's just a much rougher neighborhood. And so it's very costly for China just to defend itself from its immediate surroundings. So the U.S. has that advantage. And then I would have, you know, up until recently, I would have said that U.S. institutions, you know, the fact that it's a stable, consolidated democracy gives it an advantage over an authoritarian state like China in the long run because what we usually see is authoritarian states are good at mobilizing resources. So they sort of surge in the initial decades of their regime, but then you know, corruption, uh, the lack of incentives for entrepreneurship and innovation start to kind of erode the productivity of those regimes and they tend to sort of fall by the wayside. Um, but now I'm actually becoming increasingly concerned for obvious reasons about the state of American institutions. And I think that's the weak spot that the United States could sort of unravel from within, and even though it has all these resources and positive prospects for future growth, you still have to have a government that can function to harness all of those resources, and that's the kind of weak spot for the United States right now. Do you think it's the 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 functioning of the government itself? Do you think it's the amount of trust that citizens have in institutions? Do you think it's the kinds of norms that that are sort of rising versus those that are falling? Is it a combination of all of those and then some? 
I, I think it's several things. One is, um, you know, with the end of the Cold War, you, you see a spike in political polarization or a surge rather that's lasted ever since 1991 in political polarization in the United States since the end of the Cold War. And that's that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is what typically happens when you have a society that doesn't confront a persistent external threat, then people are free to kind of fight among each other. Um, and so you kind of see the unraveling of domestic institutions and um, you see people start to turn on each other. I don't think any of that was inevitable, but the other factors are just, you know, the United States, along with a lot of other democracies, has gone through tremendous both societal and economic change over the last 20 to 30 years. So you have this period of hyper globalization where suddenly, you know, industries that had typically been more protected from international competition are now just suddenly exposed to a huge surge of uh, low wage workers abroad that obviously puts downward pressure on the wages of um, Americans, especially in manufacturing industries, those, the so-called hollowing out of, of those type of industries that, you know, studies suggest that China alone, um, the rise of China and its integration into the global economy may have cost the United States uh, a couple million jobs over the last couple of decades. Uh, at the same time, because the United States is, you know, brings in immigrants, that's been a huge source of strength for the U.S. on the one hand, because you can rejuvenate the population. On the other hand, it means, you know, a, a mixing, you know, the, the melting pot that can become tense because you're bringing in um, people, you know, uh, from all over the world, um, you have a mix of races, and we, we don't really know how to, we don't have a lot of experience kind of holding multi-ethnic democracies together. Um, and so I think that, you know, is clearly playing out in our current politics with the political battles over immigration and, and just more broadly sort of racial tensions within the United States. So there's there's an array of structural forces, which, um, you know, lots of other scholars can can elaborate on. But I think that combined with just the absence of something to kind of suppress and keep those natural divisions within society um, under wraps, like an external threat like you had in the Cold War. I think that at least goes part of the way towards explaining our politics. I, I would also probably point out just the new technologies and um, new media technologies and you know all the factors people have pointed out, just that we're all in our segmented media markets and just only hear what we wanna hear on our Facebook feeds, et cetera. That also, of course, contributes to the polarization in society. I don't, I don't know which factor is more important, but it just seems like all of these push the United States in the direction of internal division, and we're seeing that played out in our politics today. What role it would play if we have a, a national divorce? And I don't just mean necessarily dividing our country in terms of different political institutions. It could just be that we have something like a de facto divorce or a cultural divorce, where you just have different sections of the country just operate differently, um, how that would factor in. I mean, obviously it would depend on the details, but how that would factor in in terms of how we stack up against China this century. Yeah, it's, it, as you say, I think it totally depends on how it plays out. Because you know, on the one hand, that should be a source of strength for the United States. The fact that you have this federal system where a lot of power is delegated to states and localities, that has sometimes been a, a source of strength for the U.S. just because it it, it creates more tailored solutions to local problems. You're not just imposing top-down solutions. You're also encouraging sort of experimentation in different regions. So that can create a more dynamic, innovative economy. But what we're seeing today is just, you know, people, you know, people are talking about secession, you know, <laughs> like and, and while I don't take that super seriously, just the idea that people see themselves 
as American and others, other citizens, not as Americans, that is a massive problem for society. And so I think it just depends on how this plays out. It's, you know, if there's this huge, I, I think one of the major divides we're seeing right now is between urban and rural areas um, where it's become not just like disputes over economic policy, but over a sort of a clash of cultures that's being played out. And so if you have a situation like that, it just becomes very hard to have, have good government. And I think the, the pandemic is sort of a microcosm of that where you're seeing these battles um, over, you know, what is the right way of, or over what should be something that's governed mostly by scientific facts has been totally politicized um, on both sides. And as a result, it's just really hard to have um, solutions pass through. So I, I think, you know, it really depends on how these things play out. Um, but it seems like it's going in a very negative direction rather than the traditional pluralist federal system um, that we had hoped would provide for local autonomy and experimentation and innovation. Have you done any work on whether or not the pandemic has been it, it accelerating these trends that you're pointing to with regard to China and the United States? Or does it have, does it have a little effect at all? Is it reversing these trends? Yeah, so uh, I mean, right, right. It depends on where in the pandemic you're you're looking at, but I think right now, because China has adopted the zero COVID policy, and I think Xi Jinping, along with other dictators around the world, are actually using the pandemic as a way to clamp down on their societies. Uh, it's this sort of opportunistic repression that even though it's boosted those regimes' political control over their populations, has come at the expense of the economy. So in China, you know, it's, it's everything from completely locking down Hong Kong and basically denuding it of its status as this major global financial center to the big crackdown we've seen on Chinese uh, tech firms. Basically, any company that has anything to do with the internet is now under these onerous restrictions that have erased more than a trillion dollars in market capitalization from China's biggest tech firms. Um, and, and just the, you know, China, it's supposed to be this, the workshop of the world. That's how it makes a lot of its money. But because of these onerous COVID restrictions in China, it's, it's caused supply chain bottlenecks. And so as a result, there, there's just not as much economic activity going on. So I think right now, you know, the United States actually came out better overall, even though it took a massive hit. Now, the flip side is the United States did that in part by just printing and spending tons of money which is setting itself up for a major debt problem later on. But China also has even worse debt problems as we're seeing with um, problems in the housing sector. So, you know, I, I tend to view it as, as a pox on both houses. Both countries took a major economic hit, but because China is choosing to address COVID with such draconian lockdowns on its population, I think the long-term economic consequences are gonna be worse for China. I also think just the shift in international trade and investment that's probably going to come out of the pandemic is also worse for China than for the United States, because China was much more dependent on exports and, and the global economy than the United States. Um, you know, the United States just has this massive internal consumer market that China, even with its huge population, can't match. And so China was always much more dependent on foreign trade and investment. And the, a lot of those trade patterns are shifting away now. They're, they're reorganizing either along regional lines or among so-called like-minded countries, you know, whether it's these new democratic groupings that are popping up, you know, organized by the G7. Um, so, you know, if, if there's more of a, a reshoring of industries, if, um, you know, if there are new trade networks popping up, I think those are going to disadvantage China. It's going to lose its more traditional status as like the key hub in the global 
um, supply chain. Yeah, my next question was about um, debt to GDP. And I was curious if you could speak to the relative strengths and or weaknesses of China and the United States. Um, so I know China's GDP, debt to GDP ratio used to be worse than ours. But the last few years, we, our spending has accelerated in the United States. Is, is China's debt part of why you think the United States is going to, to remain in the lead? And has that changed? Like, has our lead weakened with the pandemic and our spending? So both countries face really terrible fiscal situations, debt to GDP ratios, you know, greater than the size of their economies. China's, by all the statistics I've seen, is much larger than the United States. I mean, the, re the recent estimates suggest it's you know, upwards of 300%, three times the size of China's GDP is, is the level of their debt. And a lot of that has to do with um, you know, there's there's a whole shadow banking industry in China as well. Um, you know that uh, really exacerbates the the debt problem and the fact that a lot of China's assets. You know, we're seeing it with the Evergrande housing uh, crisis that a lot of these assets that are reported on the GDP side of the ledger may not actually be of much value, and so that's going to make that debt to GDP ratio even worse because you're going to be reducing the the denominator. So. There, there's just the simple fact that I think China, as, as a share of its economy, just has more debt than the United States. But to make it even worse for China, you know, if you're if you're highly in debt, if you're rich, it's not as much of a problem as if you're poor. Right. Like, uh, you know, if you're living, at, you know, at, at a, a low level, like closer to subsistence level and you suddenly go massively in debt, it can be a potentially fatal problem. If you're rich, you know, there are ways you can move money around. You just have more ways to tighten your belt and, and strap up for tight fiscal situation. So the fact that US, the United States is just a much wealthier country overall makes its debt problem more manageable in the long run, combined with the fact that the US, you know, with the dollar as the world's reserve currency can, to some extent, uh, has, has better means, easier means to manage its debt because other countries are less likely to have a margin call on the United States when they need to hold dollars um, and to conduct trade in, in dollars. Um, so the United States just has more leeway to manage its debt than China does as well as more wealth. Um, but certainly, you know, no one would argue that the United States is in great fiscal shape. I just think China's in a much, much worse situation. I'm curious to what role so-called American soft power plays um, in your view of us being ahead of China. By soft power, I mean things like more people speak English, uh, the internet's in English, um, Hollywood is still pretty influential. Um, people still watch American movies and television shows. In a lot of ways, we export culture. We don't import a lot of it. We do, but not nearly as much as we export. Um, in a sense, the world is American. Is that part of the picture of, of why we're being unrivaled, in your view? I, I think it's it's maybe a small part. I don't think it's as, um, as important as it was in the Cold War, because in the Cold War, you had this clash of economic systems, you know, capitalism versus communism. And so the fact that the United States had all this pop culture and all these great consumer brands. That was an incredibly powerful weapon against the Soviet Union because it not only enriched the United States and its allies, it also uh, helped lure away people that, you know, wanted to watch American TV shows and wanted to wear Levi's jeans. And, you know, it's, it's funny that like the, some people say the Cold War essentially ended with David Hasselhoff singing on the Berlin Wall, wearing a piano key necktie. And that actually happened, it's true. And in some ways it was a symbol of the fact that um, this, this capitalist consumer culture really um, was incredibly attractive to people around the world. 
and really helped um, helped really shun and and name and shame communist regimes. Today, with China, because China is is a capitalist system, albeit a state capitalist system, I think, and with its own brands, you know, its own dynamic economy, I, I just don't think that same kind of consumerist soft power plays nearly as much of a role. I would I would say though that if, if you broaden it out to look at sort of allies and partnerships. Um, you know, the United States has dozens of allies around the world. And I, I think what you're seeing right now are the United States and its democratic allies now kind of forming these democratic communities, um, whether it's anchored by the G7 and their recent meetings to carve out new economic rules that basically discriminate against China, uh, increase collaboration, you know, with Taiwan and Japan. Um, and India and Australia. I mean, you're just seeing all these democratic countries coming together and saying, okay, like China is capitalist, so we can't distinguish ourselves from China by saying, oh, we're capitalists and they're communist. But what we can do is say, look, we, we're gonna have a fundamentally different type of system that's anchored on democratic values. Um, and that's how we can trust each other. That's how we're gonna define everything from labor and environmental standards to intellectual property rights, to the freedom of navigation on the seas. You know, they're, they're starting to come to, to, to consensus on certain sort of rules and norms and, you, and enforcing those in ways that infringe directly on the objectives that China is trying to achieve. And so if you broaden out the, the definition of soft power to include collaboration among countries and governments based on shared democratic values, then I think it's actually a very powerful tool because it creates a natural, not only way to distinguish a U.S.-led coalition from what China is trying to build, but also one that is, is frankly very attractive to lots of rich, powerful countries. I mean, the richest countries in the world pretty much are, for the most part are, are democracies. And so if you can create a, a sort of democratic quasi alliance, both economically and militarily based on those values, then those values become a very powerful sort of glue um, to hold together a coalition to build against China. I think that it's still too early to say whether that's actually gonna come to fruition. You see kind of the embryonic versions of that both economically and militarily. Um, but looking ahead, you know, you could see a world where the United States and its democratic allies basically build a new international order among themselves as a way to wage competition against China. Uh, that would put China at a massive disadvantage. How worried should we be that China's going to invade Taiwan? So the historian Hal Brands, who's at Johns Hopkins uh, University, and I have, uh, have just written a, a book that'll be coming out in the summer that basically argues that China is a peaking power. So its, it's rise is essentially over. Things are going to get a lot harder for China. And we show that throughout history, when you have a country that's been rising for a long time and then its power starts to peak and it confronts the prospect of a future decline, that these great powers tend to, they don't mellow out. They actually get more aggressive and repressive as they try to race through closing windows of opportunity and accomplish the, the objectives that they want to before their economic situation gets worse, before they become more strategically encircled. And this relates to your question about Taiwan, um, because we, we really worry that this decade in the 2020s, there's a non-trivial chance that China is going to make a move on Taiwan simply because it has a window of opportunity right now, but one that's probably not going to stay open for very long. So the reason it has a window of opportunity is that the United States and Taiwan have, have basically failed to reform their militaries to adapt to China's new missile forces. 
So the United States and Taiwan both rely on um, very expensive, flashy uh, military platforms that are very expensive. You know, Taiwan with F-16 fighter jets, the United States with these big aircraft carriers and big bases based on in Japan. And the problem with those is that China now has these missiles that can potentially wipe those things out in a surprise sort of Pearl Harbor style attack. And then China, Taiwan would be essentially defenseless and the United States would have to bring in new forces from over from other regions and fight its way through a hail of Chinese missiles and mines. So China has found these sort of asymmetric ways to offset Taiwanese and US um, military uh, superiority. And so that it has this window of opportunity right now, but both Taiwan and the United States have these ambitious plans to basically retool their militaries. So both of them are now spreading out their military forces. Taiwan is, is going to try to stock up on its own missiles to, you know, to shoot at a, a potential Chinese invasion fleet. Uh, and the United States is bringing online lots of long range missiles, all these new platforms, drones, et cetera, that are going to just make it much harder for China to move an army across the Taiwan Strait, you know, 10 years from now. And so what we worry, and we think there's a lot of supporting evidence, is that Xi Jinping is thinking, you know, not only do I have this military window of opportunity, but like, you know, he's, he's going to be in his 80s in the, 20, in the early 2030s. So his own personal timeline is also sort of closing. Um, and, you know, there's, there's people with access to the most classified of intelligence, like the former uh, commander of, of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, who uh, um, has said that he thinks that China is going to try to invade Taiwan sometime within the next five years, we think there's actually a, a fair amount of credence for that. Major power war is obviously always a very rare event. I mean, I'm not saying it's it's likely. I think there's maybe a 10% chance that you're gonna see a war over Taiwan, but a 10% chance of a war that could involve the two most powerful countries in the world, both of which have nuclear weapons, is way too high, uh, at least in my perspective. Um, and so I'm, I'm, we're, I'm incredibly worried about a Taiwan situation. Do you think it would be crazy for China to attack Taiwan, but not for reasons having to do with the United States or even the Taiwanese response? The reason I'm asking is because it seems like when large powers attack smaller ones, the Soviet Union and the United States and Afghanistan, for example, or Vietnam, it doesn't seem to go very well for the larger powers. Another way to ask this would be, do the Taiwanese have enough ways to resist and just make it too costly for the Chinese? Yeah, so there's a there's no big question as to whether you'd see the same type of insurgency uh, in Taiwan that you maybe saw in Afghanistan. I think certainly the Chinese assume that if they can just annihilate Taiwan's offensive forces, that the Taiwanese, you know, they're wealthy, democratic people. That they're if you if you go to Taiwan, you don't get the sense that the population is like primed for an insurgency in the way that. Um, you know, mountain goat herders in, in, that were, had been ruled by the Taliban might be in, in Afghanistan, for example. Um, but, you know, what we've, as you point out, what we've seen throughout history is that, you know, when, when, when people get invaded, they get very upset and they are willing to endure enormous punishment to stick it to a foreign invader. So I don't think that it's out of the question that you would see uh, protracted resistance between uh, Taiwanese insurgents and, and China. Now, what some people say is like, no one does repression better than the Chinese. And so, you know, they could, they could use a lot of the same systems they've essentially beta tested in their own provinces to just crush any opposition within Taiwan. And the fact that China has the largest population and the biggest military, as well as the biggest internal security forces in the world, it certainly has way more resources it could devote to a Taiwan 
counterinsurgency effort than what, say, the United States did in Afghanistan. Um, and, and keep in mind that China, unlike the United States with Afghanistan, actually would really care about reincorporating Taiwan as part of the mainland fully. I mean, this is like national objective, you know, other than keeping the CCP in power is probably the most important foreign policy objective for China to end the Chinese civil war once and for all, to crush a rival Chinese government with ties to the United States that's democratic, that threatens the CCP's legitimacy. I mean, this would be an all hands on deck affair, one that the Chinese people would wholeheartedly endorse and support. So it's just a different situation, more resources, more resolve that China could pour onto Taiwan. So I, I, I would not bet on the success of a, of a Taiwanese insurgency. I think it, if, it's, if China is going to be defeated, it has to be on, in the conventional war before you get to you know, the occupation. How worried could we be about hypersonic missiles? And it sounds from what I understand that we dropped the ball in 2014 with our own hypersonic missiles. So what should we think about hypersonic missiles? Do they pose a threat? And why don't we have any? <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm a hypersonic. I, I I'm not as all up in air about hypersonics. I think I think what what alarmed people in the Pentagon more than China's recent tests, where they've shown off their hypersonic capabilities, was not so much the missiles themselves, which certainly help China, but I don't think radically alter the strategic situation either conventionally or in terms of nuclear weapons. It doesn't alter it that much in terms of conventional weapons because China already has thousands of missiles that pose a massive threat to U.S. bases in East Asia and to Taiwan. Um, and so just with hypersonic missiles, which just go a lot faster than existing missiles, uh, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Plus, it's also, it should be pointed out that ballistic missiles go faster than hypersonic missiles. I think what makes hypersonics you know, more deadly is that they, they can be re-steered in the same way that a cruise missile can, so they can take less predictable trajectories into their targets. So it's just much harder to defend against than a traditional ballistic missile, um, which flies on more predictable patterns. But I, again, I just don't think it changes the situation just because China already has lots of missiles. I think what freaked people out in the Pentagon was that they didn't really know that China was making these advances. So they said, well, if China already made these advances in hypersonics and we didn't know about it, what else do they have in their military that we don't know about, whether it's crippling cyber capabilities or um, new forces that uh, you know, could pose a major threat to US forward operating sites in East Asia? Um, you know, what else are they working on that we don't know about that they're about to just deliver to us uh, you know, potentially on the battlefield? So I think it's more about that. Um, I, I would also point out that you know the reason the United States has fallen behind in terms of its missile development was largely self-imposed. So after the Cold War, and you know the U.S. maintained and extended these um, restrictions on intermediate-range missiles, for example, to to keep nice with the Russians. China never signed on to these arms control agreements and went full speed ahead on its missile development. But now that the U.S. has basically thrown off those those limitations, those diplomatic limitations on its missile capability, I think you're already seeing the United States coming out with new, new missiles that are long range, incredibly advanced. And so I, I, I am fairly confident the United States will be able to match China or any other country in terms of its missile technology over the coming decade. But, um, you know, it's just more, well, if they were able to do that, what else are they able to pull off? I'm curious, though, how the United States stacks up against China with regard to things like hacking abilities. So more and more like cyber warfare is important. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so hard to say. There's been some interesting reports, like, for example, um, 
for, for your listeners, there was an interesting um, study by the RAND uh, Corporation where they tried to look at, you know, whose cyber capabilities are better. And they basically found that the United States has by far the best cyber capabilities um, in, in the world, that it's not even close. But the problem is the United States may also be incredibly vulnerable just because it's an open society. I mean, there's just so many points of entry in an open democratic society with a free market economy that maybe an authoritarian state like China can manage better. Um, that also extends to artificial intelligence. You know, if China is able to use its big data advantage just simply because it has so many more internet users and a bigger population to train algorithms faster and become a leader in artificial intelligence, that can also then play into the cyber realm because you can use artificial intelligence to create much more powerful cyber weapons um, you know, people are rightly very concerned about China's cyber espionage and, and potential cyber security threat to the United States. But I, th I think it's worth pointing out, and I think Dave, Dave Sanger over at the New York Times and others have, have made this point quite well, that essentially what we're afraid of China doing is exactly what the NSA did to China and other countries around the world, which is basically created a, a huge international spying ring to be able to conduct espionage on any country, even foreign leaders. I mean, the fact that the United States was tapping the phones of Angela Merkel, you know, made huge headlines and just showed the extent of, you know, the Snowden leaks really showed the extent of U.S. Uh, espionage and cyber capabilities. Um, and, and over the last 10 years, the U.S. has even dedicated more resources with its cyber command to really try to become a dominant player, a dominant offensive player in terms of cyber capabilities. So in terms, if you just had to lay it out, I'm sure the U.S. has very, very strong capabilities. Now, how useful those capabilities are in certain types of conflicts remains to be seen. We don't really know what an open, you know, full-scale cyber war looks like. Um, and there's a lot of academics that say, look, you know, these things can help at, in a tactical sense uh, in, a, in a war. But at the end of the day, wars are still going to be decided by armies and, and missiles and bombs and, and platforms, because at a certain point, you have to take and hold territory. Um, cyber is useful to take down communication systems, et cetera, but it's not going to win a war by itself. There's a big debate going on in political science about that. Um, and so that remains to be seen. But in terms of sheer capability, I would assume the U.S. has incredibly strong capabilities. Either President Trump or President Biden call you up and they want you to give them three steps the United States could take against China. Um, what would be your recommendations? Like what, what policies... Uh, practices, what could we do, three top things, that would better places to stamp up a Chinese invasion, uh, stay ahead uh, financially, um, discourage the invasion of Taiwan, something along these lines. What would you say? Since I'm limited to three, I'll give one in sort of each of the main areas that I think are so important. So in terms of the military, I think the overriding priority has to be on Taiwan. So a lot of people say, oh, the U.S. needs to rebalance to Asia. I think the U.S. needs to rebalance to the Taiwan Strait because that is the overwhelming, most likely area for a U.S.-China war. And it's also the area where the U.S. would be at the biggest disadvantage just because Taiwan is so close to the Chinese mainland. And so that means on the one hand, you know, advancing all of the reforms that the U.S. already on paper is, is trying to do. So dispersing our bases around the Taiwan Strait, basically putting more shooters and sensors around Taiwan to create the sort of no man's sea so that if China does try to send its invasion fleet across, you can just decimate it right at the get-go. So, you know, accelerating that, but the, the flip side is that the U.S. needs to do less elsewhere militarily. It, right now, the U.S. military is completely bogged down 
in multiple other regions. And a lot of what it's doing are these sort of peacetime, you know, showing the flag kind of missions, what the Pentagon calls presence missions. I mean, these missions keep hundreds of thousands of soldiers and, and sailors and airmen and women busy and grinds down basically the, our platform so that, you know, they're, they're not usable. So I think that the flip side has to be doing less in other areas, even at, the, at t- having to take more risk in an area like the Middle East or in Europe in order to concentrate forces in the Taiwan Strait immediately, getting as many sensors and shooters around Taiwan as possible. So that's what I would say militarily. I think economically, the goal has to be essentially sort of economic, not not containment or full-scale decoupling, but identifying the key technologies that are really going to drive forward economies in the 21st century. So artificial intelligence, um, uh, um, um, biotechnologies, um, uh, quantum computing, semiconductors, really creating this sort of critical technologies list and then working with other democracies to try to cut China's access off so that you can stay ahead, so that you're not only stay ahead technologically, but don't become dependent on China for critical goods and services. I think you're already seeing some of that. So for example, the United States got together with the Netherlands, South Korea, and Taiwan, the major producers of components and machines for semiconductors, to basically cut China off from the most advanced computer chips to cripple its tech companies. I think you need more of that kind of economic containment of China because China has shown that it's basically going to weaponize its economic links with the world. I mean, the fact that it launched a full-scale trade war against Australia after Australia had the audacity to call for an investigation into where COVID came from just shows you the the lengths that China will go to to uh, how how willing it's it's it is to use its economic. Um, links and the dependence of other countries on its economy as a weapon. So the United States and its allies need to uh, reduce their dependence on China's uh, economy and also limit its technological advance. And then in terms of um, sort of diplomacy and and governance, I actually worry tremendously about this new system that China has pioneered, where it's it's using um, traditional security forces along with new you know, surveillance cameras and social media technologies and facial and speech recognition to basically create this Orwellian surveillance system. And it's now supplying and exporting and operating those systems in more than 80 countries around the world. I think the United States, again, needs to get together with democratic governments to not only find ways to defend their own institutions against these systems, but also try to frankly, hack those systems. They have to disable those systems, both in China as well as in other countries, so that they don't look like they're as effective as they can possibly be. Otherwise, you know, these, these systems are a dictator's dream. They're going to spread around the world, and they're going to accelerate the uh, rise of authoritarianism internationally, which is already occurring, and the decline of democracy around the world, which is already occurring. Um, if if aggressive actions aren't taken immediately to disrupt those systems, prevent the technologies from spreading. You're already seeing the U.S. and Japan cutting China off from certain speech and facial recognition technologies. I think those are the kind of measures that are needed to prevent this from becoming just, you know, an easy access system for for despots around the world. I'm curious in your opinion, what's been the biggest failure with the West in terms of containing China? Well, you know, the, the traditional narrative is that the United States and its allies uh, stupidly engaged China after the end of the Cold War. They should have, after you know the Soviet Union collapse, they should have turned their ire on, on China, maybe used the Tiananmen Square massacre as the starting point for a new containment of China. 
I actually disagree with that. I think it made sense to at least give China a shot, you know, and at least uh, try to create, uh, uh, to turn China into a responsible stakeholder in the liberal international order. I mean, you had to try it. And there's been tremendous benefits too of US-China engagement. I mean, not only bringing hundreds of millions of Chinese out of abject poverty, but there's been, you know, a surge in, in growth around the world because China with its huge population is then integrated. But I think, I think the failures were twofold. One was obviously the strategic risk. So there wasn't enough uh, hedging on the other side. So if China doesn't become the responsible stakeholder that we want it to become, that we have the, the military power in order to contain it. I think we, we, we rested on our laurels and we also got bogged down in the Middle East with these endless counterinsurgency wars and so didn't invest in the air naval and missile capabilities that we really need against China today. So now we're playing catch up. Um, we didn't invest nearly enough in research and development in the in in, um, in technology in the United States from the government side um, to keep up with China. So there was just a lack of we, we, we just took our foot off the accelerator. So you could say that's that was a strategic flaw. The other was just um, just, I think, a problem of, of, of values, really not, um, you know, the fact that we endorsed this sort of neoliberal system, hyper-globalization, and didn't really do enough to compensate or protect people within our own societies from you know, massive job losses, um, um, to insulate them from global competition. And I think you're seeing the reaction to the liberal order and its emphasis on openness and sort of hyper-capitalism playing out in the new surge of populism in, in the liberal democratic world and sort of a lack of faith in democratic institutions. You see this take off after the 2008 financial crisis for good reason, but it's only gotten worse. So I think in, in, in a, the, the, the lack of what uh, scholars called embedded liberalism, which used to prevail in the 1950s and 60s, which is, yes, let's have an open global economy. Let's trade with each other, but let's also make sure that governments are taking care of their people, that this is an adequate social safety net, people are being compensated, and that governments have some ability to protect their own economies from the ravages of international markets. I just think there wasn't enough emphasis on that. The mantra was just more openness, more capitalism, more free markets, market access, Washington consensus. Um, and as a result, now our populations in the democratic world are just not, I mean, people are, people are pissed off and understandably. Um, and uh, I think we're paying the price of that. So strategic failure, as well as the failure of sort of values and, and a proper safety net and economic system at home. Yeah, thank you very much.